Hello, and welcome back to all of our longtime listeners of the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. I am honored that you continue to listen to these insightful programs to better understand the world around you. If this is your first time listening, my name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, as well as your host for this podcast. If you've never heard of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, never fear. We are a globally focused nonprofit centered in New Hampshire with a global reach. We aim to provide engaging programs that allow us to seed conversations about critical global issues, leaving the hard work of cultivating change to our audiences. Without the amazing support of our members, donors, sponsors, and audiences, none of the work we do would matter for much. Speaking of sponsors, I do want to thank our longtime podcast sponsor, McLean Middleton, for their generous support to help keep these episodes coming. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms with over 100 attorneys throughout offices in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. McLean Middleton's attorneys have been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. Learn more at McLean.com. Now, let's dive into who the Houthis are and what are their goals in the broader region. define the Houthis, it really depends on who you ask. That's Sarhang Hamasaid, Director of Middle East Programs at the United States Institute of Peace. He joined me to talk about the Houthi movement, to help better understand this group that has gained control over large parts of Yemen, held out against a stronger foe in Saudi Arabia, and has positioned itself as a disruptor on the international stage as they continue to fire missiles and drones into the Red Sea. Where do these people come from? How have they gained power, and what are their overall goals? Well, let's take a quick look back at an over more than 1,000-year history. The Houthis are part of the Shia sect of Islam in terms of their religious ideology. Within the Shia sect, they come from the, the what's called the Zaydis, and that dates back to the fifth imam of the Shia, whose name was Zayd, and they, they are the descendants from the cousin and the, the Imam Ali, the, uh, who followed the Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, in being the Islamic leader in Saudi Arabia, and what's now Saudi Arabia. Then the other dimension is the geography. They are hailing from the Sa'da province of Yemen in the north of the country. And the term Houthi, which is a more recent use to attribute uh, to this group, there's a city called Houth that people derive their name from, and there's a family name that derive the name Houthi from. So in reality, today, the group that much of the world recognizes and knows as the Houthi, they call themselves Ansarullah which is the Arabic word for either the party of God, some people translate it, or the supporters of God. Avoiding trying to explain the differences between different belief structures within Islam, I will just remind our listeners that Shia Islam is the minority when it comes to the followers of this religion. The Zadis are a minority of Shias. However, in Yemen, they make up about 34% of the population, as compared to Sunnis who comprise 65%. And Yemen is the only state in the world that Zadis make up a majority of the Shia population. 
Interestingly enough, the Zadis held power in all or parts of Yemen for the majority of the years between 1634 until 1967, punctuated by the Ottoman Empire taking major parts of the country from 1849 to 1918, and Great Britain also occupying the southern part of the country from 1839 to 1967. In 1962, the Zadi Imamate was overthrown by an Egyptian military-supported coup, and the Zadis allied themselves with Saudi Arabia with secret support from Israel and Britain, but they were unable to restore their power. This is only one of the many interesting twists, turns, and flip-flops in our story, as 60 years later, the Houthis were calling for the destruction of Israel and in a major war with Saudi Arabia, which we'll get into later. If you are looking for a really interesting rabbit hole to dive down, look at the history of Yemen from 1918 onwards, as there is a lot of intrigue, including a scimitar-wielding king who overcame a force of 600 revolutionaries, first paying off 560 of them to go away, and consolidating his power. And this was only back in 1955. Oh, and I almost forgot, he led the counterattack while wearing a devil's mask to scare the revolutionary forces. How is this not a major motion picture yet? Anyway, that's a story for another day. All right, enough with that tangent. Back to the Houthis of today. Historically, they have been presenting themselves, at least some of them, trying to restore the rule of the Zaydis who ruled Yemen, or at least much of Yemen, until 1962. So therefore, they see it as their religious right and historic right to rule. But also in the period of time where the Zaydis were not ruling Yemen, they felt that a Sunni-led dominated government in Yemen was not granting their rights and there was religious persecution, there was poverty in their areas, and there was violence. So it, it got to violence in 2004, as you mentioned. So in the 1990s, where mostly and more prominently the Houthis or the family of the Houthi come to prominence in political activism, nonviolent at that time, mostly. The Hussein Badreddin al-Houthi, who becomes the political motivation for what's now the, the Houthi movement. He gets killed in 2004, and that triggers several rounds of violent conflict between the Houthis and the Yemeni state under then-president uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh. Uh, what is known as the Sa'da Wars, in which the Houthis and others consider what the Yemeni government has done may have been a scorched earth policy. In yet another interesting turn of this mixed-up story, we have to understand the long-standing authoritarian leader of North Yemen starting in 1978, and then the first president of a unified Yemen starting in 1990, and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Despite his Zadi background, Ali Abdullah Saleh also enjoyed the support of Sunni Muslims in the country. A military man, he was elected to the presidency in the wake of yet another presidential assassination, but was initially viewed as a weak leader, with the CIA expecting his presidency to last about six months. Well, they only missed the mark by around 390 months. And for those of you who don't have a calculator handy, that would add up to a total of 33 years in power. It was not all roses and candy throughout those 33 years, but he was viewed as an adept leader who was able to manage the necessary relationships between tribal leaders through a mix of buying people off and crushing any dissent. He was an adept manager until he wasn't, and in the end, he flipped one too many times, and the Houthis finally assassinated him. Ali Abdullah Saleh 
who was killed at the hand of the Houthis, uh, as you rightfully mentioned, ruled Yemen for about three decades. And uh, so he, among a core group of leaders in the Middle East, were considered to be a factor of stability, the same way Saddam Hussein was seen as a factor of stability in the 1980s in Iraq or Muammar Gaddafi in, in Libya. He used force to provide stability inside Yemen, as he did in fighting with the Houthis, but also Ali Abdullah Saleh quoted where he's calling himself, he who dances on the heads of snakes. Basically, he called the tribal leaders and the political actors are the snakes on, that he was always in a state of dancing and aligning with this group versus this other group to, to stay in power and suppress and deal with political alliances. So comes 2011, the wave of the so-called Arab Springs, public protests in a number of countries in the Middle East and North Africa region that led to the overthrow of governments or civil wars, uh, depending on the country that you're looking at. In the case of Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh stepped down as a result of public pressure, but also the Gulf Cooperation Council that Saudi Arabia and other countries basically wanted stability in their region, and they negotiated an agreement for Saleh to step down, and he did. And then a journey started for a national dialogue to basically develop a vision for the new Yemen. Dance on the heads of snakes for long enough, and you are bound to be bitten. However, while he was in power, he did seem to do well for himself, with the United Nations estimating that he embezzled anywhere from 32 to $60 billion from state coffers over the years. But let's back up to a time before he was assassinated by his one-time allies, or were they his foes, or all of the above. Anyway, so in 1990, Saleh becomes the leader of a unified Yemen and is dancing his way through various uprisings and challenges to his power. This is where the official Houthi movement gets its start, as it would be a mischaracterization to equate al-Zadis as Houthis. In the 1990s, an activist and member of parliament, Hussein Badar al-Din al-Houthi, began a Zaidi revival, blaming the challenges of his community on the Saleh government and foreign influence, particularly that of Saudi Arabia. This led to a crackdown and the assassination of al-Houthi in September of 2004 by government forces. This crystallized the movement in opposition to the central government, which really came to a head in 2012 in the wake of the Arab Spring protests. Saleh gave into the protests in 2012, handing power to his vice president, Abd Rabu Mansour Hadi, a Sunni Muslim, with the hope of charting a new path forward for Yemen. President Hadi came basically to power as a result of the political transition that emerged from the Arab Spring. But I think pretty much all actors express frustration with him because they considered him to be weak, ineffective, and gradually uh, accusations of corruption and ineffectiveness mushroomed. First, uh, when he was in Sana'a, he was surrounded. But when the Houthis took over the area, he managed to escape. And Saudi Arabia helped him to basically, as part of the internationally recognized government of Yemen. But the point of criticism about him is that he actually spent most of his time in Saudi Arabia rather than inside Yemen. So being distant from the reality of Yemen 
did not give him the foundation to be able to lead effectively. And people seeing him remote and they seeing him as more of a, a Saudi, I don't want to use a bad term here, but they felt that he was controlled by the Saudi Arabia. So that's one issue with him and where he was and how he, um, he governed. But there's also the reality of the internal divisions of Yemen. Uh, many tribes, many political actors who have uh, competing agendas at the different armed groups, all these dynamics made it extremely difficult for anyone to govern Yemen. So now even the new presidential council that Yemen has, they have similar problems. Even when if they spend time in Yemen, just the internal divisions have not made it good ground for uh, successful leadership. We won't spend too much time here on Hadi's background, as he did not achieve much, except for a poor management of what was supposed to be a transitional government. However, it does seem that Yemen did have a real chance to create something that might work for a majority of the country by turning it into a federation of states that would have given tribal groups some degree of autonomy. In the end, the Houthis were not happy with the two regions they would have had control of in this new system, which would have been landlocked and demanded that they have more political representation than was planning. In light of this rejection, they resumed their fighting the government forces in 2014, and saw some stunning successes. I think there are two pieces to this. How did they get to take that much territory and rise to where they are today? And equally important is that how are they maintaining it? Because how they got there, there are different theories. There are those who say, oh, Iran is supporting them and Iran enabled them and they are proxy of Iran. There is the other element is that the alliance that they entered with former President Ali Abdullah Saleh and the Republican guards and the tribal network that he had, those provided basically a strong tribal alliance that gave them a tribal connections and geographic coverage, uh, weapons, uh, an organized force. And then there is the weakness of the opponents. So the, the, the side of the Yemeni government being weak, divided, faced with unity, on the side of the Ansarullah or the Houthis and the tribal uh, network that they supported. Through that, they maintained the structures of the government. They took the capital, so where that was the seat of the government, uh, the ministries and the, the different departments. Gradually over time, they have proven to maintain and manage their Yemeni network among the tribes more than their opponents did. And second, I think we should not discount the support that Iran provided in terms of weapons and advising and uh, enablement. And also there is the ineffectiveness of the outsiders who try to help the case of Yemen. So here lies yet another one of the major twists of this conflict, as the Houthis, who helped oust Salah in the Arab Spring protests, then turned around and aligned with him again in their fight against Hadi's central government, giving them access to the well-funded and armed Republican Guard against the less well-funded army. With this coalition, they worked to take massive parts of the country and take on their big rival in Saudi Arabia, who, with the support of Western allies, sided with the internationally recognized government. So the Houthis took part in the negotiations to create a new government in the wake of their spring protests. But they ultimately did not like the outcome of the national dialogue because they did not like the geographic structure that would have turned Yemen into a federation, which would have turned them probably more of a secondary actor than to their liking. Uh, it did not address their economic aspirations, political aspirations. 
So they used the weakness of the Yemeni state and they allied actually with Ali Abdullah Saleh. So the enemies of yesterday became allies of the day towards a political objective, which was the new direction of Yemen did not appeal to them. So, so they joined for different reasons. So uh, in September of 2014, they take over Sana'a. And in March of 2015, the Saudi-led coalition starts engaging militarily to challenge the Houthis and their, the coalition. Ali Abdullah Saleh makes a U-turn on the Houthis and presents himself as an alternative. The Houthis decide to kill him, and they do. And ever since, they have kind of gradually expanded the geography that they were controlling, consolidated their rule, and they, to the extent where the Yemeni coalition that was fighting against them was not successful, Saudi Arabia that was leading the coalition to defeat the Houthis reached a conclusion that it cannot finish uh, this problem through military means. They got into dialogue. And now today, we see the Houthis actually present themselves well beyond the Yemen and the regional actors and challenging global trade in the Red Sea and global powers like the United States. All right. Let's now go back to the second point that Sarang wanted to talk about in terms of why the Houthis have been able to maintain control over parts of Yemen that they have captured. Despite a massive embargo by Saudi Arabia, UN sanctions, and intermittent listing of the Houthis as a terrorist organization by the United States. Saudi Arabia relied heavily on uh, air campaigns and the coalition that is supported on air campaigns. And those throughout the Yemen experience or the Iraq experience or Afghanistan have shown that air campaigns have their limits. You re- to make inroads, you really need some on-the-ground capability to match that. But as the experiences in Yemen itself has shown and elsewhere, these complex political issues you cannot resolve through the use of military force. These are the elements of how they got there. So there is a degree of their own I think, ability to organize and staying power, the uh, Yemeni alliances that they formed and the external support that they received and the weaknesses of the opponents that they were handling. Then why did they maintain that? Uh, I think this is where it speaks to, again, Yemen is so complex. There are a, a lot of reasons. So one reason that speaking with Yemenis who know Yemen very well that they provide is that one is they are forming alliances with tribes and political actors who should Yemen become divided, whether it's fragmenting or it's a federation, they may not have access to natural resources, access to the sea. So geopolitically, and in terms of resources, they may be disadvantaged. So they see themselves aligned and remaining interested to be aligned with the Houthi coalition. Second, the Houthis over time, they have used brutal force to rein in any actor that they perceive to be a source of threat to them. And third, the alternative areas under the control of the government from the voice of the Yemenis have not provided an alternative that will provide Houthi allies to say, you know what, let's change calculation. So there is a lack of alternative there. In addition, it is important to dive into the support that Iran has provided to this movement. As a member of the Axis of Resistance, 
Iran has tried to indicate a level of separation between the group, but many in the West believe that the Houthis are a proxy of Iran who simply do their bidding. The truth probably lands somewhere in between. As with many of these groups who are aligned with Iran, it seems that there is a financial and military support that Iran has provided to the Houthis, but the group maintains its agency in final decision making. However, recently we have seen the Iraqi group Khatib Hezbollah, an Iranian-backed group, announce a pause in attacks against the U.S. after they were identified as the group that killed three U.S. service members in Jordan recently. It would be hard to believe that they took this decision on their own as they saw the errors of their own ways. But it seems a bit more likely that Iran reined them in after crossing the red line of killing U.S. service members. This indicates that Iran does have some, but not complete control over groups like this, which can give us insights into the likely relationship between Iran and the Houthis. Another area of convergence between Iran and the Houthis comes in the similarities of their stated objectives. The motto or slogan or guiding principles that the Houthis have stated since the 1990s is, God is greatest, death to America, death to Israel, a curse on the Jews, and victory to Islam. We've heard similar themes from Iran over the years since the 1979 revolution in that country. So those who know the Houthis been tracking the origins of adopting that kind of slogan connected back to when the leaders of the Houthis have gone to Iran and been inspired by the Iranian revolution under Khomeini in 1979 and afterwards. And that brought in that spirit of um, Iran had the idea of kind of exporting its revolution and the spirits of its revolution to other places where Shia populations existed in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in, in Yemen. And that was not strong probably until it was in 2003 where the grievances of the Houthis started to grow from ideological and religious uh, connections and a model to follow. The, uh, then in the 1990s, they tried their hand at the political route and being part of, part of the government. They had a couple of MPs, but then all those leading to a dead end and then confrontation with the state. You could connect to where by 2003, uh, where Iran had become more active beyond its borders, where there was the 2003 Iraq war that opened the door for Iran to be more engaged there and support different armed groups that continues to support and leverage today. So it is possible to attribute it to those two factors, a political dead end that gradually they saw Ali Abdullah Saleh supported by the countries of the region. They saw the dictators of the Middle East as being supported by the United States and other actors in the region. So then fast forward to recent years, they have gone even deeper post-2011 and mostly post-2015 into what Iran considers to be an axis of resistance, which basically or محور المقاومة in Arabic, uh, and now this is, they, they have a new reference, they have been using also for a while, which is the unity of the different domains, kind of roughly translates by that they reference to all the different groups that Iran has been supporting in Iraq, in Syria, obviously starting with Hezbollah in Lebanon, and now with the Houthis, all of them 
presenting themselves as Islamic resistance to the United States and what they consider an Israel and what they consider to be a Zionist agenda in the region. So now they are very much in that space and they have used the Gaza war to continue to promote their image as such and use the Gaza war present to their domestic and regional international audience as a war of Israel and America against Muslim brothers, Arab brothers. So therefore, they use that to even promote their agenda. There is a debate about, are they an outright Iranian proxy that they implement an Iranian agenda? Or uh, are they a partner that they do favors for each other? Or the Houthis make their independent choices and use Iran when they want to? A quick sum up here, the Houthis are a group of people, mainly from the north of Yemen, who feel they have been disempowered by the political process from their historical role as the leaders of the country. They have played the political, military, and diplomatic chess game very successfully and have risen to power, cutting down rivals, assassinating those who turn on them, and leveraging regional power politics to their advantage. They have had an unofficial truce with Saudi Arabia for more than a year and seem to have consolidated their control over a majority of the country. In the end, they are not going anywhere soon. This brings us to the present day and why people are interested in understanding the Houthis. For the past several months, they have looked to disrupt shipping off their western coast as commercial ships try to enter the Red Sea and ultimately the Suez Canal. Now, they claim that they are only firing on ships connected to Israel, but the truth is that they're either lying or really bad at identifying and targeting ships, as many of these ships have not had any connection or a very tenuous relationship to Israel. Think one board member of the ship's owner has a cousin who lives in Israel. Not sure that the Houthis are really doing that much research prior to firing these drones and missiles. The Israeli response to the Hamas terrorist attack of October 7th is their stated reason for these missile attacks. But there does seem to be a bit more to it than that. So the Gaza war gave another opportunity to rise even beyond a regional role to a more global scene where it helps them and it helps the very slogans they stand for to take on a global power like the United States. So now they are beating that drum domestically to weaken their opponents and promote their popularity as they are standing up to even a bigger outside aggressor, the United States and the coalition that is uh, supporting them. So the Gaza war may be an excuse that they, they are using and may have been a, a trigger, but the bigger objective is their rise uh, as a powerful actor over Yemen and regionally and being engaged by bigger powers. That brings me to an interesting question, which is, why would the Houthis, who have consolidated control over much of their country, have a standing ceasefire with Saudi Arabia and need to focus on the administration of the services needed by their population, risk taking on and invoking the wrath of the United States? I think I would take you back to when, when I started working on Yemen some years ago, as I was trying to learn about the group, and someone told me that this group, these people, the Houthis, are known to be patient and also being able to take pain. Since that conversation almost nine years ago, I have seen an example of that. So and if you look at the, their history, at least from the 1990s, where uh, we started uh, some of this conversation, we have seen a growth 
in their uh, objectives. So there were those among them thinking that they need to go back to the AZ to the Zaidi rule. Uh, there were those probably for the most part who were looking for improvement in their areas and in political inclusion in the 1990s. 2004 to 2010, probably among the most painful years where political inclusion didn't happen. They were on the receiving end of the firepower of the Yemeni army and with some support and in some cases uh, from Saudi Arabia. So post-2011, that was a opportunity to advance both political objectives, whether to be included or to get one step closer to ruling Yemen. Fast forward to 2014, when they decided that they would use force to prevent the outcome that would have boxed them from and prevented them from the bigger aspirations, they took made their military move. Gradually, when they saw that their adversaries are not as strong and unable to take back the territories that the Houthis control, I think this is where they realized that actually they could push the envelope even more, where they now did not see that their opponents in, in Yemen as a worthy adversary. And they said, we need to talk to Saudi Arabia. You are an important Saudi Arabia. We need to have that dialogue uh, and that direct engagement. And they called the, the Saudis and they put to them and they were promoting to the Yemenis as an outside aggressor. And they succeeded in that by the year 2022. It got to a place where Saudi Arabia declared a truce. And uh, this is where the Houthis felt Okay, time and patience has worked in their favor. And also they look at the experience of uh, Afghanistan after 20 years of U.S. investment and, and all of that, uh, the United States uh, withdrew. And so they also looked at the, even a global power. There could be a time of when they get tired. So they saw the Saudis fatigue and wanting to exit. Uh, basically, they r- arrived at the state where they can be a regional actor. And they had, by that point, they had, had registered their presence through missile attacks and drone attacks on Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE, uh, showing their reach. This has, of course, elicited a multitude of responses by the United States, from bombing campaigns on strategic military targets connected to the launching of missiles and drones, to sanctions and the naming of the Houthis as a terrorist organization again. The United States has announced that it is redesignating the Houthis as a terrorist organization. So in the last days of the Trump administration, they were designated. And then when the Biden administration came into, into the office, they, at the request of a lot of, of the humanitarian organizations and those who knew the Yemeni situation, they asked for that designation to be removed because it was hurting the Yemenis. It was blocking access for a lot of Yemenis made it the, the work of the UN international organization more difficult because you cannot engage with a terrorist actor and US assistance for Yemen would have been affected. And we're talking about a country where the bulk of the population relies on humanitarian assistance to prevent hunger. That's why when the Biden administration removed the designation, it was a welcome step and it opened the space for the U.S. to diplomatically be able to support the, the political process and try to get to uh, the truce through the United Nations and to the period of calm that Yemen had witnessed uh, in 2022-2023. Now, the U.S. has announced uh, last month, mid uh, around mid-January, that by mid-February, they allow 30 days that the designation will go into effect again because there was a political pressure 
to do so. And it was also meant to try to pressure the Houthis to, uh, to back off. The designation left a window to say if the Houthis could be delisted from that designation if they changed their behavior. So I think that's an incentive for them. So far, they have not responded positively. They continue their attacks. The U.S. and the U.K. and other forces in the coalition have continued to strike Houthi targets and shoot down missiles. So that deterrence has not worked. It is really important to keep that political track going through the United Nations and through regional countries to not set back Yemen to where it was into a civil war. As with all international issues we try to tackle here on the Global and the Granite State, there are no easy answers, and all policy solutions have their positives and their drawbacks. As Sarang mentioned, bombing Yemen back into a civil war and a worse humanitarian crisis does not seem like a good path forward. But doing nothing to degrade their ability to launch these attacks is not palatable either. A mix of responses are needed and regional actors need to come together to pressure the Houthis to end these dangerous attacks. So there is no easy answer really to about how to handle the Houthis right now. Obviously, the international community will need to prevent their attacks. So taking out some of their capabilities and responding to that has become a need. But caution is really necessary here because as the Saudis have learned, there is no military solution to the problems of Yemen. The United States and the coalition and the U.S. allies have to be careful not to be drawn into the Yemen conflict and also not set back what they have painfully worked on through the U.S. envoy and the U.N. envoy to get to a place where the Saudis and the Houthis have reached some sort of a deal not fully announced, but it can't stop the violence for the most part, no attacks on Saudi Arabia, no attacks on UAE, and the internal fighting had stopped. The Omanis have been an important interlocutor in the past years in engaging the Houthis and trying to reach some sort of deal and prevent further escalation. I think that could be continued. And key to that, the sooner the Gaza war winds down, the sooner that excuse can go away. And that will have benefits not only for uh, Gaza, but also the escalations that we have seen in Lebanon and recently in Jordan, but also in Iraq as well. This discussion shows the ways in which our entire world is interconnected and that the decisions that are within our control and those that are not do impact us. Rightfully so, the economic impact of what is going on in Israel and Gaza has not been a major focus of the responses to the war. Yes, lives and livelihoods of people involved in that war are the most important factor. But the ballooning costs of shipping will affect the global economy at a time of fragility. The lives of crew members on ships that have no relation to the conflict are now placed in danger by these missile attacks. The gains for peace within Yemen are now jeopardized. It is important to understand these connections as you consider how you are connected to the world, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this conversation and build your global knowledge. This is particularly important as hundreds of millions of people around the world will go to the polls this year and select their leaders. The World Affairs Council of New Hampshire wants people to think about the global implications of their choices and listen closely to what their leaders and candidates of choice are saying about the issues. Your choices matter, and making an informed decision is the most important way of making your voice heard.
This has been the Global in the Granite State, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode, and we hope you will take a moment to subscribe, leave us a comment, or visit our website at wacnh.org to learn more about our work. Check out previous episodes, and do share with your friends, family, and even your enemies so we can all be a little more informed. Tim Horgan is your host, producer, director, audio engineer, editor, fact checker, researcher, and benevolent overlord for this podcast. As always, our theme music is admin by A.A. Alto, and our interlude music is Fight by Hot Dope. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to another interesting conversation next month. Mm-hmm.